Welcome to 35 West. I'm Ryan Berg, director of the Americas program at CSIS and host of the 35 West podcast. With how professional the Mexican but government are we ready? I don't reform think. trends in Argentina. Right. And that's what happened. No role at all in the NAFTA negotiation. Today, I have the privilege of introducing the new deputy director of the Americas program and now co-host of 35 West, Christopher Hernandez-Roy. Throughout his more than 25-year career, Chris has worked extensively to advance democratic governance, prevent and resolve conflict, strengthen the rule of law, respect for human rights, ensure citizen security, and promote development across Latin America and the Caribbean. He has also held various senior leadership positions at the Organization of American States and has served as a senior political advisor to two secretaries general. It is an honor to have him on the team and welcome him to the podcast. Thanks, Ryan. I'm delighted to be part of the CSIS family and please now be your co-host on the 35 West podcast. This week, we'll be unpacking the implications of Russia's invasion of Ukraine for Latin America and the region's conflicted response to the war now in its second year. Our discussion will be framed by a recent commentary by CSIS America's program, which outlines some of the most fundamental ways the war in Ukraine has had an outsized impact on the Western Hemisphere. Ryan, turning back the clock to this time last year, while there was outrage and condemnation towards Russia from all but the usual suspects like Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, the same outpouring of support for Ukraine shown by the United States, Canada, and other allies has been comparatively muted in Latin America. What could account for this hesitancy among countries in the region? Well, I would say two principal things, Chris. First off, I just want to say the, the potentially the obvious, which is that it's certainly not due to the amount of economic interdependence between Russia and the region. Look, Russia represents less than 1% of the total trade between the region and the outside world. So it's certainly not the outsized influence of Russia, its economy, uh, and the like. It could potentially be for some countries, its control of certain strategic sectors, such as uh, nitrates for fertilizers. We saw that being particularly important with certain large agricultural powers, such as Brazil and Argentina, but it doesn't help to explain broadly speaking, why the region has been less than willing to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine and go along with some of the actions such as sanctions on Russia for its invasion of Ukraine. So I think a better explanation is a more historical one, which is that Latin America and the Caribbean has historically had a, uh, an understanding that the region itself is quite far away from a lot of things that are happening in the world, both uh, in actual geographical proximity and also in the sense of culturally as well. And it is perfectly happy to position itself outside of, of that world where conflict and, and other things are, are erupting, simply uh, aiming to pursue some of its own development interests and needs. The other thing that I would, I would say uh, is certainly the case is that Latin America and the Caribbean has always felt a certain hesitancy about the so-called rules-based liberal international order just to say that while it has had one foot within that order, it has also had one foot outside of that order in the sense that some have felt excluded by that order or that that order didn't fully encapsulate a lot of the, the region's interests. It didn't tend to a lot of the, the region's interests uh, in the way that different types of, of orders might. And so uh, I think looking to those things helps us to understand the region's hesitancy much more than looking at the overall uh, portion of trade that the region has with Russia, for example. 
Chris, just as the United States was condemning the brutal autocracy of Vladimir Putin in Russia, it seemed to be pursuing a detente with another in its own shared neighborhood. As senior U.S. officials traveled to Venezuela to discuss options for increasing oil production with the Maduro regime. How much did the war in Ukraine impact the Biden administration's strategy towards Venezuela? Did it accelerate trends already there, or did it prompt an entire rethink and approach? What are the realistic chances that Venezuela could offset the energy crisis created by Russia's invasion? And finally, instead of trading one autocrat for another, what should the United States be doing to both address real economic pressures and encourage a democratic transition for Venezuela? Thanks, Ryan. Let me, let me try to unpack those questions. It's amazing, really. Only two weeks after the invasion of Ukraine, the Biden administration sent the highest level U.S. delegation to Caracas, as you said, Ryan, that had traveled there in years to discuss the possibility of bringing more oil to market with an easing of some U.S. sanctions in return for lifting obstacles on Venezuela's democratic opposition ahead of presidential elections slated for 2024. The U.S. delegation was there also to discuss the release of some U.S. citizens held captive by the Maduro regime. The visit marked a dramatic shift in U.S. strategy on Venezuela, one that can only be described as guided by real politic. Previously, the Trump administration had pursued a policy of maximum pressure, imposing individual sanctions against regime officials, as well as broadly against the Venezuelan oil sector. The new Biden administration's strategy now consisted of encouraging negotiations between the regime and the opposition in order to find a sustainable path towards restoring democracy in the country and easing sanctions as an inducement. While clearly driven by the need to get more oil to market to reduce prices at the pump, the change in policy is not entirely surprising given previous democratic policy shifts in the region. For instance, President Obama's change of posture towards Cuba normalizing relations back in 2016. The U.S. did ease some sanctions, allowing Chevron to restart production in Venezuela. And Maduro did release some U.S. prisoners. However, I doubt this engagement will produce much in terms of concessions to the country's democratic opposition. Maduro has just too strong a hand to play right now, with better economic conditions at home, a totally different landscape in the region in terms of ideologically friendly governments, and importantly, the International Criminal Court breathing down his neck, which will make him very reluctant to ever want to relinquish power, lest he find himself in the dock in The Hague. In terms of its ability to produce more oil, you have to think that Venezuela's oil sector is in terrible shape due to years of mismanagement, cronyism, and corruption. It's said the sector might need as much as $60 billion in investment to allow it to get back to the production levels of its heyday before President Chavez took power. As it stands, the extra production by Chevron is really not enough to move the needle at the gas pump. While I don't think we should oppose negotiations and discussions between Maduro and the opposition in principle, we should be realistic given the history of those negotiations. Whether they were done under the auspices of CELAC, with the Vatican, in the Dominican Republic, or with the Norwegians, Maduro always used them as a smokescreen to divert international pressure and emerge stronger and the opposition weaker. We should give the talks in Mexico a chance but we should be under no illusion that they will succeed. And if they fail, U.S. sanctions must be snapped back into place. In the meantime, the U.S. needs to keep supporting the opposition, helping them to coalesce around a candidate of their choosing, conducting primaries to include Venezuelans abroad, and keep applying pressure for the elections to be conducted in 2024, even though we know they will be far from free and fair. This process could re-energize the opposition, but it's not likely to be a solution to the crisis. 
So Ryan, the war in Ukraine threw an already shaky economic recovery from COVID-19 into flux once more. Rising energy and food prices, as well as low growth estimates, suggest difficult times on the horizon. Which sectors of the regional economy have been hardest hit by the increases in commodity and energy prices as a result of the war? What, if any, opportunities have recent supply chain shocks created for the region? What is needed to take advantage of these opportunities? And what role can the U.S. play in supporting economic recovery in the region? Well, Chris, I think that the cost of living has increased across the board for many in the region in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We're talking about specific sectors of the economy. Manufacturing has certainly been hit one of the hardest given its notorious need for uh, reliable energy sources in order to keep all of the, the machines and operations running. Other sectors that have risen in cost uh, along with energy prices include agriculture. Farmers are reporting that it's more difficult uh, to be able to get the nitrates for the fertilizers that they need. As I mentioned before, Russia definitely has a monopoly on the nitrates that are precursors for fertilizers. For important countries like Brazil and Argentina that are agricultural powers in the region, it's been particularly important. However, for other countries, it's, it's also been important. We've heard from a number of farmers, uh, both, both smallholder farmers and, and largeholder farmers in field research that we've done that this has been a, a particularly difficult time for them. They've decided to go simply with less fertilizer for their crops and they're finding that the crop yields are actually being affected uh, in turn. Look, I think that there are huge opportunities to relocate supply chains from the Asia Pacific to the Western Hemisphere. And this predated Russia's war in Ukraine, but I, I think it will also be accelerated by Russia's war in Ukraine. Really, the, the main push for supply chain extrication from the Asia Pacific and relocation to the Western Hemisphere was COVID-19. It was the first time that we really saw supply chains get snarled in the way that they did. And in order to see more lubrication of, of supply chain movement from that part of the world, to the Western Hemisphere, I think you need to get the full institutional machinery of the United States government working to make that happen. To an extent, supply chain relocation will happen organically, uh, but to a greater extent, I would say supply chain reorientation needs to be lubricated. And what I mean by that is the DFC, Development Finance Corporation, needs to put money into this. U.S. Agency for International Development needs to put money into this. And also, we need to see some of the frameworks that the Biden administration has set up to accelerate economic growth and development in the region, such as the, the APEP, the America's Partnership for Economic Prosperity, really take off to provide the framework that companies want to see in order to, uh, to provide their investments. Uh, without that framework, without a guarantee that a number of countries are working together in common purpose toward these goals, companies may be less than willing to invest in a region that can at times be pretty shaky and unstable. Without the APEP, companies don't have guarantee that they can meet their ambitious environmental, social, and governance challenges, for example. Um, so these are the types of things that the Biden administration, through providing this framework, can provide the type of certainty that companies in the private sector feel like they need to justify the movement of their supply chains from the Asia Pacific to the Western Hemisphere. I think we need to understand that this is not a process that happens entirely organically. It's expensive. Supply chains are generally sticky, and so there have to be some incentives there on the table in order to, to lubricate this movement. In terms of what the United States can do to continue to support the economic recovery taking place in the region, one thing is what I just mentioned, which is the, the nearshoring piece. 
But the other piece um, I think has already been done partly, which is the United States had a robust vaccine diplomacy. It didn't reap the full benefits of vaccine diplomacy for a number of reasons. It didn't message the same way that the Chinese did. It didn't get the first mover advantage that the Chinese did by being there early and often, but it did get the advantage of having the better quality product, which most of the populations in the region wanted in the end. It's what most of the populations in the region ended up receiving in the end, and it's the, the type of efficacy that's allowing the region to get back to work in terms of being vaccinated as, as a region. So we've already done a decent amount of, of the work uh, helping the region to recover where it was prior to the pandemic. But I think more can be done, especially on the supply chain front, which is something that could bring dividends for years to come for the region. Chris, today the push for non-alignment with respect to Ukraine appears stronger than ever in Latin America and the Caribbean, especially among newly elected leaders such as Petro in Colombia and Lula in Brazil. There's been a worrying tendency to ascribe blame for the war to both sides. While non-alignment in both sides sentiment is high throughout the region, is this kind of strategy viable over the long term? I think honestly that the majority of countries are just trying to stay away from taking sides in this conflict, hoping it's over before anyone notices, because it's hard for them to make a decision between economics and defense of the liberal democratic order. The majority will condemn the invasion, but they won't do anything about it in practical terms. In addition to the usual suspects, others will even abstain from symbolic moves, such as kicking Russia out of its observer status at the Organization of American States. No country with significant Soviet military equipment has agreed to send any help to Ukraine. Costa Rica is an outlier on the positive side, as is often the case, because its government has ordered compliance with U.S. sanctions, and Chile has at least offered to help clear maritime mines, but only after the conflict ends. Latin American countries will keep trade with Russia open. They're even increasing their supplies of Russian oil because their own industries are unable to ramp up production. And in some measure, they're benefiting from the war. They're filling part of the void in the international grain market left by lower supplies from Russia and Ukrainian wheat. So they're trying to play both sides as best as possible. This really isn't a surprise, frankly. They've been playing both sides in the strategic competition between the US and China in the region for years. Some like Mexico and Brazil would like to play peacemaker. But Mexico's proposal has already been shot down by the Ukrainians, and I expect the same will happen with Lula's proposal, if it hasn't already, as he's cast blame on both sides for the war, when it's clearly a classic war of aggression by Russia against Ukraine. So if they haven't done so a year into the conflict, with full knowledge of all the atrocities that the Russians are committing in Ukraine, like the mass slaughter and torture of civilians in Bucha, Irpin, and other places, it's doubtful they will actively take sides short of Putin doing something really crazy like detonating a tactical nuclear device. This is a clear disappointment, especially with the more advanced democracies, most of whom were deeply scarred by their own military dictatorships, and they should have stood in solidarity with Ukraine. Chris, thank you for joining us today on 35 West, and to all our listeners, stay tuned for more episodes to come. For you, thank you for joining. Stay tuned for the next episode of 35 West.